Welcome to the Canola Watch Podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. Today I'm talking and listening with Saskatchewan farmer Christian Hebert, mostly about farming practices that improve profitability and sustainability at the same time. What sparked our conversation was Corteva's Climate Positive Leader Program, which recognized nine farmers for their sustainable farm practices. Hebert was one of the nine, joining others from Australia, Brazil, the United States, and Kenya. I told Corteva that I was doing this podcast with Christian Hebert, and Bryce Eager, president of Corteva AgriScience Canada, sent me this note. Hebert Grain Ventures has been a pioneer in applying climate-positive practices on their operation for nearly 30 years and continues to implement new and scalable on-farm sustainability practices, Eager writes. These climate-positive practices are a prime example of how agriculture can be a solution to climate change, benefiting our planet, our industry, and the global food system. Bryce Eager's name will pop up again a little later in the conversation. Let's get into that conversation right now. Start right now, you're good? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm Christian Hebert. We farm just south of Mooseman, Saskatchewan. Uh, Kind of a large grain farm growing malt barley, wheat, canola, yellow peas, hybrid rye, and occasionally some oats. You and I first connected, I'm thinking it was about a, a decade ago, organizing the canola discovery forum and um i wanted to talk about business and i thought a good person to talk to would be danny kleinfelter out of texas a&m and danny said that you should take his place how did it go from your end how did that come about yeah similar type of story i uh there's a i think there may or may not have been a a landscaping injury that uh, that Danny he might blame his wife Vicky for that he was out hedging some trees so I'm not sure he could even come but uh, yeah same kind of story you know I, I think you guys are looking for someone to talk on farm business management and I have probably more respect for Danny Kleinfelter than than anybody on earth when it comes to that and his ability to talk high level concepts and how they can be applied to a field and yeah so kind of from then on I I took one of Danny's rules it's part of his top 25 called the five percent rule and Maybe maybe made it a little bit more Canadian, tied to canola examples, and that was the very first time I kind of ever did uh, a live presentation to a crowd on farm management. And I guess after that, I did ended up doing quite a few of them. Well, let's just talk for thirty seconds about the five second rule since you brought it up. Um, what is it? Yeah, so the five percent rule is just how I don't really believe in you know unicorns, and if you look, you know, at little changes, it's pretty pretty amazing how count how compounding that can equate to your bottom line so five percent rule when it comes to a canola example is pretty simple you if you grow five percent more bushels so let's call it two or three and sell it for five percent more which in the old days of canola you know at ten dollars that was 50 cents obviously today it's a little bit more and and find a way to manage your fixed costs so lots of times it's to do with labor and capital utilization and save five percent on your fixed costs those three little 5% changes usually equate to somewhere between 100 and 125% increase in net income just because of the compound effect. So, you know, it, it's just to always focus on little things and don't think that that you're just looking for some new jug 
uh, or some new piece of equipment to double your net income. Usually it's a multitude of, of small changes and adjustments you make throughout the year. I think one of the analogies you made in that presentation was about a baseball hitter and a 5% increase in batting average is like going from a 250 to a 300. And a 250 hitter gets paid a million a year and a 300 hitter gets paid 20 million a year. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. One more hit every 20 at bats, right? Changes the average by that much. And you're, you know, you're right. It, it's a Hall of Fame all-star career versus just another batter. And yet that's all it did. That's all that player did was was hit the ball one more time every 20 times he went to the plate. So, so we're talking today not about baseball, but about, well, we're leading off anyway with um, your award of uh, Corteva's Climate Positive Leader um, Award. <laughs> And you're one of nine around the world. You're the only Canadian. Um, what does that award mean to you? Well, I mean, any award is humbling. I mean, it, and I always say, like, you know, we're we're not big on awards. We just try to run our business the way we we feel is the right way to run our business. And and there's times where we get nominated, you know, for awards and and are humbled enough to win them. And really, my my feedback always is is that we couldn't do anything without the team we have, right? And the industry that we're in. So, you know, as a group, you know, our team fully believes in, in longevity of the farm and sustainability. And, and I always say that, you know, sustainability and climate positive are pretty good marketing phrases that, uh, that the companies have come up with right now. Um, and, and they're the hot words, but really I believe all farmers have cared about sustainability and climate positive practices for their life. I mean, it's one of the only industries in the world where, you know, we all say a little prayer at night, hoping our kids will take over. And the only way our kids can take over our operation is if both our land and our financial statements have, have improved generation after generation. If, if one of them declines, we've hurt the next generation. And so, you know, that part, it's pretty neat, you know, that our team has bought into the concept and we've been able to, to make strides forward and make little changes, you know, to, to get noticed by such an award. But a lot of these things are things that I think Western Canadian producers have been doing for a long time. You know, practices such yeah. as variable rate and sectional control and soil testing and, and some fall crops. You know, there's some new ones coming down the pipe, but those ones are things that I believe pretty much, you know, a large number of Western Canadian farms have been practicing for years. And, and I think as an industry and as a country and as a government, we need to do a better job of, of highlighting what we've done already compared to the rest of the world in agriculture. And, and yes, is there things we can do better? Absolutely. It, there is in every aspect of life, but you know, it's pretty amazing what, what the Western Canadian farmers have accomplished already. We're, Christian, we're going to get into all of that stuff, um, including some of the, you call them little things uh, that you're doing on your farm, which, which can add up to pretty big results. So just, I want to take a step back though. Um, um, two steps back. So the first step back, I just want to note that, so the Climate Positive Leader Program, this is from Corteva, recognizes early adopter producers who are successfully implementing, scaling, and sharing climate positive practices. So we're going to start, we're going to share some of those practices in a bit. But my, my two steps back, Christian, um, I want to talk about your farm and what makes it special to you. So what what's your favorite place on your farm? <laughs> my favorite place is probably you know, running an air seeder, to be honest. I think I spend a lot of time in the office, probably, you know, more than your atypical farmer and, you know, around the world. But, you know, my, my favorite place is right in the middle of seeding when we're trying to execute flawlessly and we have 20 days to put the crop in. Um, I, I don't believe, you, it doesn't really matter what else you do good on a farm, a grain farm. 
if you do a bad job of seeding, the rest of the year is is not, I'm not saying to say pointless, but doesn't have near as many, you know, near as much upside as if you do a good job of seeding. So that's that's probably my favorite part. Okay, so I was going to ask you why that's important to you, and I think you've explained it. I mean, that's it's where everything begins. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, it, I could love harvest, but if I don't do a good job of seeding, I don't get to harvest very much. All right, now I'm going to ask you about a person. So who is who has been a major influence in your life? That's pretty hard to just nail it down to one person. <laughs> <laughs> can you nail yeah, so it I down mean, to three? <laughs> yeah, I, I could nail it down to a few, right? I mean, I mean, sure. I, I would use Danny Kleinfelter as one. So, and I and I'd use that pool of mentors, and Danny was one of my big ones in in making me think bigger and think globally, and and really just not accepting that the answer could be this is the way we've always done it. Always try to find kind of unique ways or solve the puzzles to maybe do it a little bit different. I think secondly you know, my, my farm team. So I, I have two or three key people on the farm that are, I lie on really heavily. My, my father's still heavily involved as a project manager. And I mean, he forgets more about farming daily than I probably know. And at the same time, we've added, you know, a farm manager and a, and a CFO that have been huge as part of our management team and pushing our culture down. But really every person on our team kind of has a unique role. So that'd be the second group. And and then, I mean, the third person, and I should really put her first, it'd be my wife, Teresa. I mean, we got married when we were we're 20 years old and she didn't grow up on a farm. You know, they had a couple horses and cows, but the the idea of, of a large farm and, and may or may, you know, some days where we have large amounts of debt, depending on what we're going on and what land we're buying, which isn't the, the world she came from. Um, she's pretty supportive of all the crazy dreams I have and, you know, l- lugging kids around all their activities when I'm gone seeding and, and harvesting. And, and at the same time, you know, she does a lot for our farm and, and brings the kids out to the field, et cetera, to experience being a farm kid. So that, you know, that would be kind of my three groups of people that uh, have been pretty, have been and will continue to be pretty important to our operation success. Christian, one of them you said was your CFO, uh, Chief Financial Officer. You've got an accounting background, but you still feel that a, a separate person in that CFO role is important, eh? Why is that? Yeah, I always joke I'm a recovering accountant. I don't really fit the the CPA mold. But um, as I did more and more speaking, we started to do some consulting, you know, engagements for for other farms and for government entities and for large multinationals around the world of farm management. And I I was really just getting stretched too thin and and couldn't spend enough time on the data to really back up some of my ideas. So that's when we we created Maverick Egg, which is really you know my CFO runs that full time. He's the CFO for our farm and probably, I don't know the exact number anymore, but another eight to 10 farms um, that he does CFO work as well as kind of helping with bank negotiations and setting up proper finance and risk management strategies, you know, as well as, you know, data projects with some multinational companies in the government around agriculture, ag data, and, and what we can learn from it to hopefully, you know, make less mistakes in the future. Well, that's good. I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit hole about finance, but we'll try to stick to the <laughs> the the subject at hand, which is uh, some of the practices you're doing on the farm. But as part, so back to this Corteva Award. As part of it was you were, you got an invite to attend the Global Farmer Network Roundtable in Brussels, which was part of COP26 last fall. Did you go? Yeah, yeah, I did. It was the week before COP26, so they kind of planned it in coordinates, obviously, because uh, there's obviously going to be quite a few people are talking carbon and and everything environmental about farming at COP26. So I was in Brussels the week before COP26 with a group, well, with the other the other nine winners. And there's 
you know, a group of people out of Cornell called that run the Alliance for Science group that helped with presentations. Uh, and we got to meet, you know, we got to meet a number of bureaucrats and multinational company leaders that are all kind of working down this path of, of climate positive changes, uh, not only on farms, but also around policy and how we most likely need to get more involved in that. Mm. So I want to ask two questions about that. What did you get out of it? And what you what do you think your presence meant or how they, how you might have influenced the discussion? So what, what did you get yeah. out of it? First of all, I probably got out of it, you know, that as we work through all this stuff from a policy level, we really need to have, you know, kind of global theories, but then regional strategies. So, for instance, uh, a couple of the ladies I met there farm in Africa and Zimbabwe and, and you know, they're one, two, three, four acres and they're worried about security just getting to and from their farm and showed me bins that their corn's in. And I mean, it's made out of trees, if to be honest, compared mm-hmm. to what we have here. And so, you know, sometimes when these policies are made, there can be, you know, an elite, let's call it a slightly elitist bias to some of the stuff we're trying to accomplish. And it's just unaccomplishable in some of the other regions of the world. So let alone, you know, just within regions of Canada, you compare Saskatchewan to Southern Ontario, and those are significantly different growing regions. So it it really gave me a perspective on having a global theory, but regional strategies in order to get to these policy goals we have. I would yeah, say probably those, my. Per- oh, go ahead. I'm just going to say with those 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 small landowners, landholders, those four acre farms. I just read something recently about how, I mean, sequestering carbon is such a challenge for those some of those small farms because they they eat the crop, they feed all the biomass to the livestock, and then often they'll use whatever's left over, including the manure, to to use as fuel. Um, so there's not a lot of organic matter left over to to build carbon. So we're we're in a, I guess you could say a better situation to to make a difference for the world here in Western Canada. What is that? Was that your perspective as well? Yeah, you know, I think we're in a better situation, but we also have to understand that you know some of our farms in Western Canada, or the majority of them, have have access to more technology and and more ways in order to implement some of these new technologies. And at the same time. You know, I don't think we've done a good enough job of of comparing a small acre farm to a Western Canadian farm to a you know to a couple in downtown Regina or downtown Toronto to really explain the carbon you know emit you know the emitter uh, of carbon versus the sequestration of carbon on a human by human basis. I mean, sure, do I emit exhaust out of the tractors, et cetera, and and use fertilizer? Absolutely, but I also have a thirty thousand acre greenhouse for you know one hundred and twenty days of the year that my urban counterparts probably have a couple of vehicles and maybe a quad and, and possibly a skidoo and a camper and and grow three or four plants at the window. And I'm not saying that's a wrong thing. I'm just saying that we need to have a baseline to compare what agriculture in Canada and around the world has already done for a positive influence on carbon. And, and yes, what we can do better, but we need to have a, a little bit of a comparison and a baseline so that conversation can be had. Okay. So do you, do you think that's where you your leadership to to others like in this Brussels conversation can be effective yeah so I mean I talked a fair bit about that and and then obviously the fact that I do a bit of speaking etc I can get some ideas out to the public maybe quicker than some farms but you know I think the last place um, that we had some influence is just our size western Canada period but you know our farm in particular when I was in Brussels is that a lot of these practices we look at need to be scalable, right? If we can only do it on one acre at a time, 
we're going backwards to a bunch of gardens and that's not going to feed the world. And so we have to look at scalability when we when we come up with carbon philosophy and carbon strategies. And that could be scaling on, you know, a couple hundred acres or a couple thousand or a couple hundred thousand. It has to be part of the philosophy when we move forward in order to to actually make a difference. Okay, well, let's let's get into some of those practice practices you use on your farm. And I mean, on the scalability, the first one on on this list I have is is your grid soil sampling um, every four acres. Which I mean, that's that's kind of going the well. I guess you 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 help me understand how going smaller like that also helps with with scalability yeah i mean my goal is to get down to probably one acre but you have to man you know you got to manage cost benefit and what you can actually you know make a change on so we've always used four acres to understand our farm better and we overlay ec maps and topography and and yield maps as well in order to to better understand our land so you know i I do believe that all of these philosophies really start with a soil test because we we don't really always understand what's going on in the in the four feet of soil that's growing our crops and so it seems like small scale, and yet at the same time, you know, I met with an ag tech startup last week that that has a 36-inch soil probe that you carry around in your hand, and you push it into the ground, and it gives you soil test results within 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not completely calibrated to, to Canadian agriculture yet, but they're working on it. And I mean, if they crack that code, we might be to the point that we actually have permanently installed soil tests that's giving us live data on what's going on in the soil every day of the growing season. So I mean I think technology is allowing some of this some of these technologies to you be used on really small plots but on large scale. Hmm, that sounds that sounds pretty cool to be able to get that just in time and soil analysis and uh, if it's a probe that you can stick in you could you could start probing all over the place if you want to and not have to wait for a, a test result to come in. Exactly and at the same time reduce costs, right? Like the sending everything away to the lab and the labor etc. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. I think there's a lot of technology that is going to change how we do things currently. But I mean, that's no different than 50 years ago before we had, you know, zero till drills and, and a lot of the technology we have now. So let, let's talk about costs, because I know you're you'll spend money on enhanced efficiency fertilizers, nitrogen. You'll spend money on variable rate fertilizer application. Those are those are cost outlays. Um, but what's the what's the return on investment, or how do you work that out? Yeah, so I mean, on nitrogen inhibitors, you know, we had done a lot of, or, you know, or increased in efficiency nitrogen. There's two two pieces to that puzzle. I mean, one is that we I'm starting to feel that we don't want to put all of our fertilizer down in one pass because I don't think it's the best thing for the plant. So increased efficiency or uh, you know products such as ESN or Super U can be put on at different times of the year, whether that's broadcast or or through the air seeder and it allows you to to give the nutrient plan to the crop at different times of the year which which we believe is a big benefit to our crop secondly would be a nitrogen inhibitor that we put with all of our liquid nitrogen and we just did a number of tests to show that that there was some nitrogen gassing off Um, and so when we ran the math it made sense to run inhibitors on our farm not only you know not only was it better obviously because there was some gassing off from an environmental standpoint economically it made sense too so you know, we're we're pretty focused on running trials on our own farm to see what works or doesn't work for us. And and we don't feel that everything we do here is going to work on every acre in Western Canada either. So we're we're pretty big 
fans of each operation running the trials they need to to get comfortability with it and you know compare that to to trials that are run independently or at universities for some extra data so you talked about doing on-farm tests to to measure nitrogen gassing off um we're also we're 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 slowly getting better we as in sort of the canola or the let's just say agriculture in general and measuring some of these things but we're not perfect Uh, so i want to talk about measuring carbon but let's first talk about how you measured gassing off of of nitrogen what did you do i mean i'd have to have my agronomist explain the actual (laughs) science to you but the the farmer side of it was is you know we we do a strip of of liquid 28 that wasn't treated and then we do a strip right beside it of liquid 28 that was treated with an inhibitor and there was these you know little testers that we plugged into the ground and covered the covered the group of three or four testers with a five gallon pail because that enclosed the gas and and uh if it gassed off they'd start turning fluorescent kind of yellow and if it didn't gas off they didn't turn yellow and then as i said i'd have to my agronomist would have to give you the science behind measuring the amount of pounds that we actually felt was gassing off but the test that really caught me is is i was actually running the air seeder myself myself it was the middle of the night and it started raining so the strip that I did without the treated, without the inhibitors in, uh, was actually in the rain. And so that in theory, that should have been the best time ever to not have gas off. And at the end of the field, I turned around, threw the inhibitors in, and came back down, put the test plots in. And even with a half inch of rain, like literally within an hour of when I seeded, there was still some gas off, off our 28 versus none, virtually none with the inhibitors. Um, and so that was that was really what kind of changed my mind and when we started using them as I said I'd have to get my agronomist to, to actually do the math calculations how we determined how many pounds it was that it was releasing but it, you know so ever since then we've treated everything well as we have these conversations about nitrogen use efficiency and and um, you know improving or reducing nitrogen losses in general uh, I'm going to be writing articles about this, so we may have to follow up on that with your agronomist and uh, see how that worked and and what the results were. But let's talk about carbon sequestration because that's that's another thing that you're looking at fairly closely. And and uh, so I wondered how how do you measure carbon levels in your soil right now? So I mean, this is probably one of my biggest issues with the current carbon movement is they want to just focus on practices, and yet I'm not sure we have enough data even to even tell what we've done right or wrong in the past. So we're dir- working with Dr. Ritan Lal there that I saw you interviewed a couple of weeks ago and and uh, and court- out of that Corteva award. But I mean, the, the soil testing it took to kind of get the carbon measurement and baseline was close to $40 an acre. Uh, it was a lot extreme testing. It was deep. You have to do a certain specific soil test in order to be able to measure bulk density so that you don't compact it at all when you do the soil test and the carbon burn off. And so part of my belief is that this is an area where the government might have to step in a little bit and do a big enough chunk. I don't know. I don't understand what percent of soils we would have to do in order to use algorithms and AI to to create a mass map of Canada to get that point. But that's the hard part is that to measure the carbon year to year, in my mind, I haven't seen a real good explanation of how we're going to do that. But the simplest form of it is an increase in organic matter. As organic matter goes up, we sequester more carbon through the photosynthesis process. And the higher the organic matter soil, the more it's going to sequester. And so that, you know, the easy measure is let's measure organic matter, but it takes a long time to change. And and most people understand, right, that the longer, the more days your soil is covered with green matter and then with residue being incorporated back into the soil are, are kind of the two 
most simple forms of being able to increase organic matter. But then, you know, the, the next step is let's start to use the data that we're, we're able to capture now to better understand that process and what, what practices have the largest effect on it. Do you have any, any inclination now, say what crops in your rotation are the best for increasing organic matter, even down to some of those depths that, that often aren't measured? Well, I mean, we started using soil water probes probably seven or eight years ago, and it, it really did surprise me that by the end of June, almost all of our crops had root matter, you know, pulling water and, and showing activity at four feet already. So, as I said, I think we've done a pretty bad job of understanding what's going on in the four feet of soil. Obviously, you know, our barley crop, I really enjoy the amount of residue that, that we can incorporate back in the soil. We even bale some of it, but like just the root residue of the barley is is phenomenal. Uh, but on the other side of that, I mean, we grow some yellow peas and those, you know, those people that are in the pulse industry can tell you that it, it's crazy what pulses do for your soil. They just, it becomes so much more mellow and and obviously it's their ability to to fix nitrogen is is another large win. So I think the biggest thing is don't get stuck in a, in a one crop rotation. I mean, we hear, we hear stories of canola snow, canola snow being a rotation and I don't care what that crop is, you know, some diversity to crop rotation is a significant you know, a win when it comes to increasing organic matter. You talked about the, um, you know, extending the number of days that you've got crop cover and, and, and fall crops. What, what do you do strategy wise to, you know, those frost free days, that window is, is fully in crop or, or cl as close to in crop as possible, maybe even out over the edges of, of the frost free period. What's your strategy there? Yeah, I mean, I'm, like I said, we started implementing fall rye for a number of years into our into our rotation, which is which has been beneficial. But like, th this is kind of where my global theory and regional strategies come into effect. So I've got bodies in Brazil. Obviously, they never have frost, and if they don't have a cover crop in when they don't have a crop on the ground, it, it's a big deal because erosion is such a problem down there. Now, it, where we farm in in Saskatchewan, there's times when I've got three feet of snow. And eight feet of frost is my cover crop. That's a completely different set of, you know, issues that we have to deal with versus somebody farming in Brazil. So that's where, you know, that's where I think we need to have the global strategy or global philosophy of improving carbon sequestration, which is really the improvement of organic matter. But regionally, each region is going to have practices that have a better, you know, rate of return. And, and in, for both the farmers, financials and the soil itself, that'll have the biggest impact. So just to ensure that as we have these global ideas that we have regional strategies that get implemented first. Just just a quick technical question about your your crop sequence with with the fall rye. What's the crop before? What's the crop after? And and is there any season of of follow within there? Yeah, no, there's no follow in our rotation, and rye will typically go after canola. Uh, the canola catches you know as long as we're straight cutting the canola and leave fairly high stubble it catches snow pretty good for us so it'll go it'll tend to go after a canola crop and then uh and then we'll tend to put peas in after the fall rye okay so so canola and then the fall rye is the is that same fall after harvest exactly guess, yeah. yeah so we'll harvest the canola and put the fall rye in the next day okay so that's this is sounding like super basic stuff i'm just and then so you harvest the fall rye in say early August, probably. Um, yeah. but, but so you're not planting the peas that, that you're no. not, you're not, you don't have a sh super short season peas. So what are you doing after you harvest the fall rye? Well, I'd like to believe, 
it it sounds good on paper that we'd harvest our fall rye in early August, but it tends to actually be more like early to mid September. No different oh, okay. than our wheat. So no, no different than our wheat crop. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. But you do. Yeah. Have, so we do have some barley land that my brother will silage for cattle though that'll come off in you know mid July. So then what happens there though is I usually have a deal done with him where that's where all the manure will be spread uh, and incorporated with say like a minimum till type operation on those on those quarters of land. That's what we'll be doing in August and September. Yeah, there's a few other things I want to chat with you about, and, and but you mentioned rattan lol, so I want to go back to that. Um, so part of one of the other things Corteva arranged for you as part of this award was that you'll receive guidance, and I'm going to read the name of the organization, the Carbon Management and Sequestration Center at the Ohio State University, and that's where Dr. Lal is. So what kind of guidance have you gotten so far? Well, so far it's just been guidance around, you know, capturing the soil tests uh, in order to measure current carbon and then next year is where we'll well this upcoming year is where we'll get more guidance on practices and and the actual science and hopefully data behind what each practice is seeing in an increase uh, but up till now it's just been on gathering up the soil test and what's okay so uh, is this a five-year deal or do you is it no end in sight when it comes to working with them on on some of the things they could help you with yeah, for, so far I, I haven't seen an end on it. It's kind of just a collaboration working together to share information so that hopefully the speed of which we figure all this out improves. Well, I think as part of your leadership, uh, they they hopefully will learn as much from you as as you learn from them and get that bit of give and take to, to help uh, extend the farmer message or the message to more and more farmers. Exactly right. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, which we, you and I chatted about last week, was what do you do with rented land? Is it do you treat it differently than the land you own? No, so I mean we don't. We treat it exactly the same when it comes to fertilizer rates, practices, everything. Um, but we also tend to focus our land rent rental agreements around that idea. So we kind of have a minimum of five years on our rental agreements, and we're up to fifteen on some. Um, in order to to have better goal congruency between the landlord and ourselves, I think. I think very short-term rentals can lead to some bad management decisions, but if the if the rental contracts are longer in term, um, even if there is a variable rate portion to that, then I think that the landowner and the farmer can have, you know, very similar goals on what's about to happen on that. Right. Land. So, so you as a farmer can invest in that land, knowing that that you'll have it for long term and start reaping some of the war rewards from that investment, rather than turning it back to whoever the next renter might be. Exactly right. I mean, you know, fertilizer is such a phosphate and potash. I mean, it takes, let's call it eight to nine years to fully release everything you put down in year one. So if it's very short term contracts, I think everybody's setting it up for the possibility of some weaker management decisions and it and no one no one party is at fault. And but the longer term of the rent, I think uh, I think the better the goal congruency is that it is farmed exactly the same as every other piece of dirt on the farm. Right on. Okay, a couple more things. So Danny Kleinfelter, um, one of the things he did was, in, in, was actually gave you a little nudge to be more of a leader. Can you tell me how that went, that conversation? Yeah, well, he's done it a few times, but you're right. He, you know, kind of in general, I guess Danny's belief was that in agriculture, we tend to get the tend to get the story about us that we like to complain, right? That we don't want anything to change. And it's easy for us to just say the government's doing it wrong or the grower group isn't standing up for us correctly or so on and so forth. The, the urbanites won't listen. And yet at the same time, 
not very many people in our industry are kind of willing to stand up and and at least give their thoughts. I'm not saying that my thoughts are right or wrong or any other farmers are, but at least stand up and say them and, and encourage discussion and collaboration and get feedback and change and get better. Uh, and so that was Danny's push was that, you know, you're you're pretty comfortable with speaking and and I like that you're good at numbers. Why aren't you why aren't you more vocal? He goes, I think there's young farmers especially that are starving for someone to just follow and and hear about your successes and hear about your mistakes and your challenges and and possibly some of the ideas you've had to fix those. And and he said, I think government and multinational companies need to listen to to someone like you or and a whole bunch of others like you that they need to understand that most of their leadership very rarely gets onto a farm and actually feels the dirt and what it's like to accomplish what we have to every day in order to feed the world. But if that story doesn't get out there, they're going to make that story up for you. Yeah. So he, uh, yeah, he gave me a pretty good push and, and basically said, I, you know, I'd be disappointed if you didn't step up to do it. Do you think you're influencing Corteva? Like, is this a bit of a give and take with this award? Yeah. Well, I mean, I got a bit of a neat story about Corteva. Um, is that uh, the current CEO of Corteva Canada, Bryce Eager, his dad and my grandpa were were really good friends. They golfed every Thursday together uh, to the point that uh, there may or may not be a story of Bryce even babysitting me once or twice when I was younger. <laughs> so when Bryce is out in Mooseman visiting his father, we usually get together for a coffee and and we talk about this exact stuff, right? You know, we, we talk about how certain policy from both a government standpoint and a multinational company standpoint really doesn't align sometimes with what farms are having to accomplish every day and, and how are ways that we can collaborate in order to, to improve that. And I mean, it's not always going to work, but that's the mindset you have to go into it with. And I think, you mean, you said this before, and I, I know it's true, is that farmers are, are very resilient. I mean, you have to be in business, but but if we can show um you know ways that work to improve nitrogen or nutrient use efficiency farmers will adapt those measures if we can show uh measures that will improve carbon sequestration farmers will will adopt those measures especially if there's a someday we get a good price for for that carbon um i, I think we just got to demonstrate we as in me as the communicator and and science and government as the researchers, science, scientists and, and government funders as researchers show those practices that, that work. Um, I think that there will be uh, lots of opportunity to improve agriculture on the prairies. And, and it, yes, it's gonna take some leaders like you and maybe some communicators like me to get it done. All right, so last question to you. Anything you, you're planning for 2022? Anything different on the farm this year? To be honest, we kind of simplified. We have a wheat, barley, canola rotation this year because I think with current commodity prices, we have, you know, we don't get too many chances like this to have to have the revenue that we're about to have if we grow even just an average crop. Um, so we wanted things to be as simple as possible so that we could execute, you know, as flawlessly as we could and, and increase the odds of capturing the current opportunity that's out there. Um, so, we, yeah, we've talked about that lots as a team and, and what we need to do to ensure that, I mean, there's always going to be mistakes and there's always hiccups, but what can we do to, to increase the odds as high as possible under the current commodity price environment to, to capture this opportunity that's in front of us? Thanks again to Christian Hebert for sharing his sustainability practices. Right on. Well, thanks, Christian. It's a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jake.
For more about the farm, visit the website hebertgrainventures.com. That's H-E-B-E-R-T. For more on Corteva's climate positive leaders, go to corteva.com sustainability slash climate positive. Finally, the Canola Council of Canada has a whole section on sustainability. Go to canolacouncil.ca and click on the sustainability tab at the top. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wetter.